Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a podcast helping academics and former academics to find wellness, meaning, purpose, and freedom in life and career. I'm Danielle Delamar. Glad you're here. Hey, hey, hey. It's so nice to have you here. Did you hear my voice crack? <laughs> I did my usual my usual hey, 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 and it cracked because I have a cold. Dun, dun, dun. In pandemic world, a cold is very anxiety-provoking. Um, this cold has run through the family. It started with my daughter, and then my son got it, and I got it just, uh, I don't know, two days ago, and now my husband's starting to get it. So, yay, lucky us. Um, my husband says that he doesn't think it's COVID because... Um, we're all just too snotty for it to be COVID. <laughs> COVID, it doesn't really have that symptom. So I'm hoping that's all it is. I'm hoping we're through this soon. Um, but yeah, getting a cold in the pandemic is the worst. And the other thing, I guess, I guess what really gives me anxiety about the whole thing is that I am really careful you know, I make sure we're all sanitizing when we can't wash our hands. And when we can wash our hands, I'm making sure everybody's washing their hands and nobody's going to school. Nobody's going to work. Everybody's home all the time. Um, I even sanitize the mail, you know, like I am really careful. So the fact that we have this cold does give me a little bit of a panic. I'm like, what is happening? Why? I mean, we go to the store for groceries and we go to playgrounds so our kids can run off their energy but that's about all we really do and when I say we go to stores we almost never take the kids it's almost always sort of an errand for my husband so I don't know how did we get sick I don't know ah pandemic living is just so hard um in just little ways even when you're lucky and things are going fine which they have gone really well for us in our family. Um, there's always a little bit of anxiety there. Anyway, um, I am so glad you're here. And I want to say that today in episode 30, I am talking to Dr. Chris Cornthwaite, who was so much fun to talk to. And he was fun to talk to, I think, because we just have a lot in common in terms of the way we think about career development and personal development. And, you know, I was just so happy that we were able to, you know, briefly talk about Oprah and Martha Beck and Tony Robbins. <laughs> um, and you'll find it, as you listen to the episode that you will clearly see how excited I am by um, some of these topics. I am saying things like, amazing, that's wonderful, perfect, right? That's my experience too. Oh my God, right? I'm all, I'm very, very excited in this episode, which is a little bit embarrassing, but um, it is how I felt. It, it, it is how I feel um, about these topics. So yeah, um, Chris has some excellent advice for PhDs exiting academia. And I think in this conversation, if you're struggling to find your way out of the cloud, um, you know, between academia and the outside world, this conversation will really help you. 
uh, Chris does a really good job of outlining ways that you should that that you could be thinking I'm not going to say should but you could be thinking about your your life and your career that is empower that are empowering and uplifting and um useful in getting you from what he calls the darkness to that place where you can actually visualize a future outside of academia um you're going to lo- really love this episode and if you think like me, you're going to super love this episode. Uh, so yeah, here's the interview now. Take care, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today in this conversation with Dr. Chris Cornthwaite. He is an entrepreneur and blogger at Roosterbane and author of Doctoring, Building a Life After a PhD. Uh, that That is a book, by the way. I guess I should say that. So, Chris, thank you for being here. I'm so glad you're here. You have no idea how glad I am you are here. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, I, um, I invited you mostly because I was following Rooster Vane and I was reading some of your blog posts and you have things about networking and how to use LinkedIn and how to start a consulting business. And everything was just really nicely packaged, accessible, easy to read, um, really clear points. And I often, you know, recommend your stuff to my clients. And, uh, So that's why I really wanted you on the show. And the thing that um, I also liked, which we just chatted about before, (laughs) before the recording was the swearing piece, because you will swear in your blog. And I find that really refreshing. (laughs) That's good. Good to know that it's refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the other thing, speaking of the swearing, um, I always ask um, guests if, I always ask them about their mantra for their careers. And your mantra was, I am fucking unstoppable, (laughs) which again, I found hilarious. So (laughs) will you talk about your mantra and when you use it and how it sort of changes your mindset? Yeah, for sure. I I think um, it's funny. And just a note on the swearing, my last job before I went and did the PhD in between the master's and the PhD, I worked construction for a summer. And I actually didn't really swear before I went and worked highway construction for like five or six months or whatever it was. And um, I really picked up a lot of language. And I just realized how sometimes those words just seem to express so much more than (laughs) than other words. So anyway, so that got me in the bad habit. I couldn't agree more, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, But yeah, so all that to say that I, um, yeah, so with, with the mantra, I mean, I think a lot of it came from me just feeling like I didn't have any personal power. And a lot of when I was leaving academia, I felt like, um, frankly, I think I felt like a victim in a lot of ways. And I felt like things had happened to me, but I didn't have a lot of agency in how I was kind of living and creating my own life. Um, so I, I sort of, I mean, I had listened to a lot of, like I listened to a lot, a lot of personal development speakers and that sort of thing. And I think honestly, I just, over time, it kind of evolved that I, I would say to myself, I am unstoppable. And then I actually liked like when I was going for a jog or something, I would say it to myself and it would be just saying like, I am fucking unstoppable added so much more weight, I think in my mind. I don't know why that little psychological piece of, uh, of the swear just added a bit more, but anyways, yeah, that's my mantra. <laughs> 
I'm totally going to try it. So this is like, I'm feeling um, nervous, maybe before a job interview, or I'm feeling like I don't have any personal power or whatever it is. And then you just kind of summon that I'm fucking unstoppable. And then you, you can, you can really feel the switch in your body. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just, just as an attitude to life that it's, it's um, again, like after having gone through that period and feeling like I was a victim, just like coming to the place where I'm, I'm believing that I'm going to build the world I want to build for myself. And whether that's, you know, a company or whether it's my personal life or whatever, um, that that's the attitude that helps me most to approach it with is, is just to, to really believe that I'm unstoppable and, um, seems a lot more healthy than, than going easy on myself. So I like to really like try to push myself to, to live up to that mantra, you know, cause I don't always feel that way, but. Okay, so uh, I want to ask about the personal development speakers you follow. Would you do you mind telling us some of them? Oh, I listen to everybody, honestly, like anything from like anything from like Les Brown and Tony Robbins to um, like Brene Brown. And I, I just I love most personal <laughs> development speakers. It's funny because when I came out of academia, I, I wouldn't listen like I had this attitude like, well, I'm an academic and like there's that's not critical thinking, you know, all that like self-help stuff. And, and ironically, when I sort of embraced it, it it was one of the things that really helped me to get through the, uh, the dark time that I went through. So I'm like, if it's, if it's personal development, I'm probably watching it and giving it a chance at least. So that's gotta be another reason I have, I have enjoyed like, like following you on LinkedIn because I'm totally (laughs) the same way. And actually I was a closet personal development junkie when I was in my PhD program. I, and, and during my whole tenure track career, I just pretended that I didn't do it. (laughs) 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 Right. Cause everybody, you're right. You have so much criticism and judgment for it. Like the Academy does. And, and then as part of the Academy, you have to too. Um, But yeah, yeah, no, it's totally where I found my, a lot of my strength as well. Yeah. that's Um, Okay. Okay. So this, this podcast is called self-compassionate professor. And it's because I like to feature people who have created careers and lives um, in self-compassionate ways, in creative ways. They've paved paths that are their own and very unique to themselves. And so you say, you know, I want to build the life I want to live. And I'm wondering, are you feeling like you're living the life you want to live right now? I mean, will you tell us what you do um, as an entrepreneur blogger at the moment and sort of where you want to go and how you're feeling about all of that now? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a, it's such a loaded question. <laughs> My living the life I want to live. I mean, I'm not quite there, but then at the same time, like, and, and it's kind of the theme running through personal development is that I also don't, I do have like goals, obviously, and destinations in mind, but I also just want to see how far I can go, you know? So even when I reach a certain goal, I want to see what's next and (laughs) build something else. Um, But yeah, um, the life I want to live. Yeah. So I think in terms of the, so I should actually, yeah, I should actually start by explaining what I do. So um, as maybe if anybody has seen the Rooster Vane blog or or knows a bit of my story, um, I did a PhD in religious studies and then I came to Ottawa Um, capital city of Canada. And I really didn't have any idea where it was going to take me or what I could do with it. I, to be honest, I thought I was going to go back to that construction world or something just to pay the bills. Um, But after kind of networking really hard, I landed a job 
uh, running projects for a think tank in Canada. And I did that for a little while. And then I went and worked for the Canadian federal government on a really neat program that helps other countries launch refugee programs. So I was doing um, so, sort of like diplomacy stuff and, and also just really rewarding work. And it was really fantastic. Um, but while I was there, I started a, a little blog called Rooster Vein, um, and it started to kind of take off and get some traction. So it was obviously I was dealing with a refugee refugee um, issues in my day job and then kind of talking about careers and, and under, underemployment and uh, degrees um, when I basically I would write blogs like I would get on the bus at five o'clock in the morning to go into the city. I had a really long commute and uh, I would just sit with my laptop on the bus and everyone else was sleeping and I would write blogs and I'd come, I'd edit them on my, on my lunch break at work and I'd edit them at night and I just, I, I loved it. I just really found what I love to do in writing and telling stories on, uh, on Rooster Vane. And, um, and it helped that the site had some readers too. So I wasn't just kind of shouting into the void, but I could actually have um, feedback and, and I had kind of that, uh, that loop to, to know that what I was saying was actually kind of helping people. Um, so I ended up leaving the government. I do, um, I do consulting now. So I, I do have a company that does consulting. And then I also make some money off Rooster Bain. It's not my full-time job yet. It would be very nice if it, uh, if it gets there. So that's speaking of goals. That's, uh, that's one of my kind of medium-term goals. Um, but yeah, so that's in terms of living the life I want to live. I think I still have a lot of growing to do and a lot of building to do. But it's really empowering to at least know that I'm on my way. You know, even though I haven't arrived yet, I'm kind of taking steps in the right direction. So. Um, and so I'm thinking about some of the things you write about in your book, Doctoring, um, Building a Life After a PhD, um, where you talk about some of the, the stories you were telling yourself mm -hmm. and how <laughs> those stories got in the way for a while and sort of undermined your ability to do the things you wanted to do. Um, will you talk a little bit about how that happened and where you are now with being able to sort of, I don't know, shoot holes in those those stories that aren't working for you anymore? Yeah, that's it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know where I picked up a lot of the stories I picked up. Um, probably, I mean, just through a lifetime. And and you and I were talking before the uh, before the blog. We were talking about um, being working class and how that kind of plays into your psychology. And I think that's. A lot of what I what I'm unpacking now as a 35 year old is ironically still stuff I heard when I was you know 10 or 15 growing up, and things that the people around me thought they understood about the world. You know, like get a get a good job with a good pension and you'll be set. Um, kind of uh, live for retirement <laughs> was always the uh, the way people thought. Um, people who were successful had to be lucky or they had to win the lottery or something like that. Um, we hated rich people. We hated entrepreneurs. <laughs> I lived in a factory town. Um, so there was just a lot of, a lot of baggage that I brought to the way I looked at the world. And then, I mean, that just, that just grew over time and academia was kind of a place where a lot of that, um, a lot of those stories continued that, um, for, um, for kind of a kid who didn't exactly, um, know where I was going, I guess, when I, when I got into academia, it gave me this kind of mission that, that, uh, I'm, you know, saving the world, I'm advancing knowledge, whatever, all the stories we tell ourselves, and with that came that idea that this is something that's uniquely meaningful and that nothing else will ever be as important or as valuable as, as academic work. And I, I bought it for a little while. Um, but then the, the crisis just came when I couldn't actually have that life anymore. And I left and I, I had to rediscover what, uh, what that purpose actually meant for me. And I, I came to realize that actually a lot of the things I was telling myself about academia 
um, were not unique to academia. I mean, whether or not academia um, gives people purpose is a is a very different question and discussion that's loaded in its own way. But but for me personally, I just had to rediscover what what purpose was for me and what I was going to live my life for. So. So it started by just having to get a job, but then in the long run, it was like, okay, I need a new vision. I'm not going to be a tenure track professor. That story has to go. So how do I kind of rewrite my life story around something that's actually empowering and something that I have control over and, and can build? So. And I wonder what happens because my guess is that those stories still come up, even though you know, you can sort of work through them now and process them in, in more productive ways than you used to. But like when those stories come up, um, I don't know, like um, academia would have been a better place to be, or I don't know, I'm trying to think like, uh, my big story is I'm incompetent. I will often tell myself that. Yeah. And um, I find a way to process that. Um and and find a way out of it now in a way that I used to not be able to to do. And so I'm wondering, how do you process through this, the negative stuff you tell yourself that kind of holds you down? But you're it's because you seem to be able to shake it off in ways you couldn't before. Tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah, for sure. No, no, you're right. Um, it's what it, it's interesting for me, like, and I still I mean, I, yeah, I do still have some of that stuff. I would say the academic stuff is almost completely gone. Like I really don't have days where I'm like, oh, maybe I just, it would be nice if I could be a tenure track professor. Like that is actually literally gone from my brain. And it might be, it might be in part because I'm just, because I, I talk to PhDs all the time. So I know you do too. Um, it might just be in part because the Academy is such a shit show that I'm just constantly reminded, like, had I stayed, things would not be better, you know? <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. that I'm not sure if that's a part of it, but I, for whatever reason, like that story is pretty much gone from my mind. Um, and now all that's left is like wanting to help other people kind of break out of that one. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I mean, I, I still get, I, I struggle a lot with inadequacy and especially um, like launching a company and there's, there's so much learning to do and I, I make a lot of mistakes, frankly. <laughs> um, so anything from like teaching myself bookkeeping to learning marketing to, creating products and having to um, ask myself, like, well, is anybody even going to pay for this? Do I even have anything to, to give? Like, there's always, I think those kind of nagging inadequacies are just things that are just part of life after a while, <laughs> not even unique to academics. But um, yeah, I would say I, I kind of work through them usually with the help of, um, yeah, like the personal development stuff. I try to listen to stuff every morning to get me in the right mood. Um, I try to exercise. I don't as much as I should, especially with the pandemic, because I used to love going to the gym. But um, to me, it's like building a lot of things into your into your personal life that kind of help keep you moving forward. And at the same time, recognizing like I think it's a balance for me between like sympathizing with myself and, and kicking myself in the ass. So like some days it's like, OK, this is just not working. I just need to, you know, go play with my kids for half an hour or something or an hour or more, more whatever. And some days <laughs> it's like, OK, <laughs> get your head out of your ass and go and do what you need to do, because this is not going to do itself and and you have a family to feed you know <laughs> you have bills to pay and this is uh, this is the reality so it's kind of a balance between the uh the self-tough love and the uh the self-compassion i think for me 
Oh my gosh, that's so good. I love the I love the sort of balance between sympathizing with myself and kicking myself in the ass. Yeah. That is so real. <laughs> it's really important. Because I, yeah. that's what I do too, right? You you kind of get you either get super 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 hopeless and nothing's going to work. Yeah. Life is awful. Um or you know, come on, get it together. Rah, yeah, rah, rah. And exactly, finding yeah. that balance. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, okay. So I want to ask you then about the thread that's running through your life. Because as I told you before the recording, I do this with my clients. So I was so excited to see it <laughs> in your book. Um, yeah. You say you sat back and you started looking at all the sort of work you've ever done and realizing, huh, there's something common that's running through all this stuff. And so one, I want to ask you how you figured that out. And two, I want to ask you um, what that thread is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll start with what the thread is. Can I take them backwards? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally, so totally. Well, I was, so I was raised evangelical and I was kind of like religion was like Christianity was a part of my life for most of my life. And, um, I, I grew up in that, but I also stayed with it and I went and, um, actually the reason why I didn't, I didn't undergraduate degree, but the reason why I actually went on to higher ed, I was, um, I was actually working as a minister and also working as a landscaper too, on the side part-time in each. And I, um, Basically, I went back to higher ed to get accredited to become a minister. So I went to uh, I went to seminary for a degree that's called a Master of Divinity. And along the way, this is a it's a, not a story I tell that much, but I actually went through kind of a crisis of my own faith, and I, I lost um, I lost my religion, I guess, for lack of a better word. It was it had a lot to do with studying um, religion close up, but it also had a lot to do with um, working with I was working with teens and. Um, especially LGBTQ teens and um, not really liking the way that they were being treated by uh, by the church. So there was a lot of different things that kind of led to that, um, led to me actually leaving leaving that religion of my youth. Um, so then I, when I left that, that was kind of world one that imploded. And then I threw myself into the academic study of religion, which was also, it was really interesting. And it gave me a way to use a lot of the knowledge I had, but it kind of fit. And I, I bought like, I totally bought the academic story. I want people to know this, that it wasn't like, I don't want people to hear my story and think like, oh, well, he never really wanted to be an academic. Like, no, I basically, I found in academia what I had been looking for in religion, which was um, a purpose, a calling, something bigger than myself that I could devote myself to. And I went and I started, I started chasing that. So that, so the dream became the tenure track job. And, and I mean, my, my PhD was actually fantastic. I mean, I traveled the world, I lived in a bunch of different countries. So I had, I had a really good experience, but then that came to an end and it couldn't, it just couldn't exist anymore. It wasn't possible for me. Excuse me. So I, um, yeah, so after, after academia imploded <laughs> and I went and I was trying to find myself again as a, as a policy analyst and as these different things, um, and then I started Roostervane. And I, I think I had told myself that I had basically just had three different careers, you know. And what actually happened, speaking of this thread that kind of run through, ran through my life, is that when I stopped and realized, and it wasn't even that long ago that I had this realization, but I realized that actually all of these, all of these paths had very similar kind of components to them like in, in each thing I've done it's been about 
kind of questions of purpose, like big questions of what is life about, like what, where do we find our meaning? Um, that's why with the rooster vein, it's, it's been a lot more than just a question of like getting a job. That's obviously important um, in the kind of PhD hierarchy of needs. But in the longer, in the longer run, the actual goal needs to be more than just getting your first job. It needs to be like building a life you love and finding something that you want to kind of commit yourself to and, and uh, like a purpose. So that's what kind of wound through everything that I've done, that thread of meaning. So it was a really neat realization to find <laughs> to find that it was I don't even know if like, honestly, I don't really know where that realization came from. I think I was just like walking one day and kind of talking to myself as I often do. And kind of it kind of hit me. But um, it was yeah, it was a really neat thing. And even actually in, in personal development, ironically, coming back to that piece, um, so becoming a personal development junkie, it kind of helped me help me get past my my dark phases, but also recognizing in personal development, a lot of the same kind of elements that could almost be described as like spirituality or, or as a religious studies person, I would call them, you know, things like rituals and, and like like symbolism and like different kinds of ways that we make meaning. Um, and I found that in personal development, too. So it's that's kind of been the the thread, I guess. That's a very long answer. But that's the the thread, I think, that was running through my life that I've only recently just realized. Okay. And so will you, will you just say in a sentence what that thread is? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the thread, the thread has always been, first of all, doing something for myself with my life that is meaningful and that, and that has purpose. But the bigger, the bigger part of it for me and just my personality has always been about helping other people to connect to their purpose and to unpack those big questions of, who am I, you know, what, what's the job that I have to do in this world for whatever time that I have? And, uh, and how do I, how do I do it? Okay. So I'm thinking now about like the rituals you're talking about or the, the symbolism. And is there a way that you use those things to sort of emphasize this purpose that you have this you know having meaningful experiences helping other people do you use that stuff I guess uh that's a good question I I suppose I do I mean I have my own rituals and and like one ritual that I have for example is every morning I sit and I I usually like I'll, I'll watch YouTube videos and stuff to kind of get myself in the right frame of mind and I have I do some journaling so I have a bit of a morning kind of a morning routine I swear by and it really helps me kind of prep my prep my brain for the day, I guess. So, so, um, yeah, I suppose that's a ritual. It's interesting, like as a religious studies person, when I studied ritual theory, um, like rituals aren't things that like fall from the sky. They're just, it's behavior that humans kind of decide is uniquely, uniquely special, you know? So, so we are like building rituals all the time and, and sometimes we're unbuilding rituals too. Um, so I think like for me, it, I actually went through a process of recognizing that rituals are important, not even because I have some sort of supernatural adherence to them, but just because it's just kind of the way humans work that as individuals and as societies, we, we build our life around rituals and meaning is also attached to those rituals. So, so for me, building a personal set of rituals, and um, I think ideally I'd love to have more like community-based rituals. I, I don't really have as many anymore. Um, but, but uh, all of those things are, are, I think, important for how humans make, make meaning. So. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Do you do you mind? I don't know if I don't know if this is a fair question, but like uh, community rituals, have you thought about that? It's sort of envisioning. Have you have you envisioned that at all, and what that would look like? Um, I don't know in Roostervane or 
or wherever you're imagining community rituals? <laughs> That's a good question. I haven't, uh, I mean, I, yeah, so, so obviously like in, in my past, it was in a religious community and even studying religion, I was looking at religious communities. Um, but one of the things I, 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 I've never written about this, but I've been curious to, to write about it because a lot of the lenses we use to study religion could be used to study a lot of other things. So for example, like a lot of what we do around sports or popular culture or you know, even Wall Street, like all of these things have rituals kind of bound up in them that we, uh, that we understand inherently as humans. I don't understand sports as well as some people do, but I still kind of get it. You know, when I go to the sporting event, I know what's going on. So I think a lot of it's a lot of those types of things. So, so not just in typical religious communities, but any community you find those rituals. And then in terms of like rooster vein, it's a good question because I, I think I haven't been as intentional about building those <laughs> as, as I have, but I do run a community and I think that there are certain things. So for example, we have a, a couple of different meetings every month that happen monthly. Um, and one is just, we call it a happy hour and everybody just shows up and we talk and it's just really fantastic. And I think in a way, I like I've never called that a ritual. And to be honest, it would probably freak people out if I did. But um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but there's something there is something kind of ritualistic about it, knowing that like we come together once a month and this is really has a lot of meaning for us. And we kind of we're very open, like it's a very like we really do share like the things that we're struggling with and the things that we're excited about. And, and it's a really it's a really kind of close knit community. So I think that's what's really special about um, just about human communities in general. And ironically, in a, in a secular society, we have more and more trouble, I think, connecting to those kinds of communities. So it's definitely important to find places where we can, uh, where we can kind of live that out with other people, I think, whether that's, yeah, whether whatever that community looks like, I don't know. Um, I think for some people listening, it might be academia right now. <laughs> so that's one of the uh, one of the challenges in leaving academia, too, is that academia itself has all sorts of rituals kind of built into it. And uh, when we leave, we have to unpack and kind of get a new set of rituals. <laughs> so, so it's challenging too, but, uh, but it is really, yeah, I think it's really important for our human kind of identity making. I am fascinated by the idea that we have all of these rituals in academia. And of course we do. It, ma it makes logical sense. But what specifically, like, could you give, could you give me an example just so that I have a clearer idea of how you're sort of connecting that? Yeah. I mean, it's so coming back to the whole like ritual theory piece, like ritual, I mean, this is, this is like, you're making me do my academic talk now. So I'm <laughs> something sorry. I don't I'm talk sorry. about a lot. Okay. No, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. I'm just, I'm just teasing. But um, yeah, so, so in academia itself, I mean, there are, yeah, so rituals, I'm thinking anything from like tenure to the yearly cycle of the academic job market to, um, I don't know, giving your first conference presentation or winning your first grant or, or dealing with the second reviewer on the, uh, on the article. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to play it too heavy, but like, these are all things that we as academics form our identity around. And it's the irony of academic Twitter that when somebody in, you know, biology or something tweets out, you know, about their, their rejection because of the second reviewer, I actually understand what that means. And I, I sympathize with it. I empathize with it. I know what it feels like. I, you know, all of those things, because it's kind of a shared ritual that we have that creates our identity that isn't actually our discipline because they're biology and our religious studies, but I still understand exactly how that feels. So that's, I don't know if that's a good example, but that's, those are the sorts of rituals that, that make up our lives as academics really. That's super helpful because, um, 
when you leave academia, all those things that that held meaning for you, then no wonder you feel like you're in this sort of black hole and you don't know where to go. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk about um, the community you run? I, I mean, I think it would probably be really helpful so that if people are drawn to the work you do um, and they want to join Rooster Vane community, what is it um, that they can do to join um, and what is it that they would get if they did join? Yeah, for sure. It's The community itself is kind of iterative. It's been around for about five months. Um, there's a lot of like there is a lot of value there, um, but it's also interesting because as a community, we're kind of we're going through and, and we kind of evolve all the time in terms of like what we actually need. So for some people, like for some people, obviously, again, going back to that like hierarchy of PhD needs, some people just need a job, right? Like some people have the the uh, end of the month looming and they need some money and they don't really have the luxury of being like of asking those questions about like, what do I want to do with my life? Because they really just need a paycheck. So, so we mm -hmm. do some of the career support and networking and all that sort of thing. And there's, there's actually like one of the things, I don't know if you found this, but one of the things I've found is that a lot of PhDs who have gone forward and, and built great careers really have outside of academia, really have a desire to give back. So there, there are actually a lot of people in the community who have really great, like impressive careers and they've honestly asked me if they could join just because they want the chance to give back. So there's a really fantastic uh -huh. kind of group of people who are established in careers and people who are just looking. Um, but I think also the bigger question and the, the question that always interests me more is like once you get that first job, whatever, you know, you've got a paycheck coming in. Like the bigger question is always what's the purpose, you know, like what's the what's going to be my new thing that I'm going to devote my life to. So we do spend a lot of time on those types of questions, too. And like for some people, I mean, some people want to start blogs, some people want to start companies, some people want to just get a better job at, you know, at a different company or whatever. So we try to create a bit of something for everybody. So we have a really, a really um just a really great entrepreneurs group that we all talk about things we're working on. People are, some people are just at the idea stage. Some people have already launched things and we kind of work together and go through it. So I think one of the things I realized really early on was that in leaving academia, one of the biggest things that helped me, and then I've, I've subsequently seen it help other people is you just kind of need to develop a new vision, you know, and until you kind of float for a while, like you float for a while, you go through a period that I like to call the darkness. That is a really difficult period. You don't know who you are. You don't know, um, you don't know kind of what you're about and what you're going to do with your life. And you feel like you've just wasted everything. And that, that happens almost universally. I won't say universally, but a lot of people go through it, but then you wake up one morning and you're like, okay, I want something to do. And when you develop that new vision, I've seen so many PhDs that when they get that new vision for their life, it like propels them forward, you know, and all of a sudden they have something to chase. And for some people, that's like starting a small editing business or I don't know, graphic design business or something. And for some people, it's like, I want to go build the next, I don't know, Microsoft or Uber or something. And for some people, it's like, I want to go and I want to, you know, be the CEO of this company or I want to be a marketing manager or whatever, fill in the blanks. Like everybody has a different kind of vision. Every, everybody's vision looks different, but it is really important in developing that I've found for moving forward and, and kind of moving on with your life. Okay. So what you just said is, is sort of 
I I say sort of, it is exactly how I think about um, this, the process. Um, You've got to go through the darkness. You've got to go through the meltdown. You got to just like feel all the shit. And then once you've gotten through that, then you can start creating the vision. And it feels like, and you tell me what your experience is, but my experience is, you absolutely cannot be creating the vision until you've worked through all the the dark emotions that you're experiencing having made the exit from academia. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think so. I was I was gonna say I call it the darkness. I think Inger Muburn actually calls it the valley of shit, which might be a better <laughs> better term for it. But <laughs> either way, yeah, it's that that period. Um, I think it's I think it's mostly true. I have um yeah, I've seen I've seen a few people like just get a really cool career making job fast and just be okay with it. And I think it probably has something to do with like your expectations about academia. So I think I think what I've what I've realized, first of all what I've realized is there are a lot of kind of field specific things. So I've I've met certain people and I I'm thinking especially in some STEM fields, um public policy would probably be a, an equivalent thing that people always planned on leaving academia, you know, or are they always at, at least they knew that there was a good chance they'd be working outside and they were excited about that. So I think some of those people don't go through the same things, but I think for the people, and and my book was honestly written for the, I don't know if I'm as as explicit about this as I should be, but like my book was really written for people who thought they were going to be tenure track professors and your world came crashing down. And for those people, I really do. I, I totally agree with you. There's kind of a mourning period. There is, there's that dark time and it might take, it might take a few months. I've, I've met people who have been in it for probably five or 10 years, which is really scary, but, uh, but it kind of is what it is. So I think, yeah, I think I, like everybody goes through that. And the question is just, yeah, how long is it going to be and when are you going to come out of it? So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me because my, my clients are always like humanities, social sciences, mid-career going to lose their mind if they stay in yeah, exactly. um, academia any longer. So yeah, yeah exactly. okay, okay. Yeah. So you got yeah, the and, like, down, the, and then you got the vision. Yeah, because in like in the humanities and social sciences, we don't come in thinking like, oh, this is cool. I'm either going to be a professor or I'm going to go work for big pharma or something, right? Like you don't really have that kind of thing that some STEM, not not all. Right. And I don't right. want to I don't want to minimize it because I do have people say to me, um, I've had professors say to me, STEM students don't go through this, and that's a lie. STEM students do. And a lot of there are still a lot of STEM departments that um, that kind of give this expectation to their students that you're going to be a tenure track professor. But but um, yeah, I think over overwhelming, overwhelmingly social science humanities, it really is like there's nothing else we've really imagined doing other than being a professor. Okay, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so now I want to ask about um, how you what sort of strategies you have found to help people through the meltdown period and what sort of strategies you have found to help people through the uh envisioning period yeah for sure it's um so there's actually i think one of the posts that i've written on my blog about this is called um something like how finding your story helps you how how telling your story helps you find your purpose or something like that and okay. I think I think like it's actually one of the most important things I ever I don't say I ever wrote, but it's it's one of the important things I realized about my own journey and about other people's journey is that I kind of put into words what I went through, which is the kind of um, I'm not going to remember all the steps because I don't have it in front of me. But basically, it started with like 
like unpacking these negative stories, um, recognizing where your stories come from, um, and then starting to craft like a much more positive story about your life. And that's where some of those, like we talked about the thread of meaning running through, like, I think I kind of discovered it by accident, but when people do the kind of do the inner work, um, and spend the time kind of reflecting on it, I think you can start to unpack like your own thread that runs through your life and you can start to, um, I, I, I call it like, so the whole journey ends with like writing your own story, which is you have agency over who you are and where you're going and you get to decide that. Um, so I think it's not something, it's funny because I think often like the blog posts that are just like academia is a shit show and like those do a lot better because people like to <laughs> like to have that conversation and like to kind of hear the complaints. And sometimes I think, I think the positive posts do better as well. Um, but if I have one thing I've thought through that that's the roadmap, like that's the post that that's like the roadmap for recreating yourself. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of ties those two things together then. Um, the, the meltdown and the vision. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think like, I, I just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear that you have a very similar process because that's exactly for me, it was just like kind of naming it eventually. And I had gone through it myself, thought about it, but never written it down, watched a few more people go through it and was like, okay, this is kind of what seems to happen for most people that I can see. And then actually intentionally creating a roadmap to be like, here's what you can do. And I've seen that help people now too, that now that they can kind of go through those steps themselves. And I think that really, uh, that really does tend to help people a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the fun things that I love is uh, Martha Beck talks about uh, some of these same stages. And one of the things she says is that, um, who, by the way, is also a recovering academic. Oh, I didn't know and that. She, uh, yeah, and she writes, you know, a lot of self-help books. And um, she says that, um, uh, uh, so in the meltdown period, you just don't do anything. <laughs> you just kind of crash and burn and let yourself crash and burn. Yeah. And you don't try to do anything. All you do is try to keep yourself alive. And if you have kids, you try to keep them alive too. And that's about it. Yeah. Um, and then um, in the vision period, when you start to really create something that you're excited about she said um you things start to happen like <laughs> this is so fun and it's so true because yeah. i see it in my clients things like um your hair changes like you want a new hairstyle <laughs> or you want to wear new clothes or you know you just start being sort of attracted to some other i don't know uh, piece of literature or something that you've never yeah. really cared much about before, but like you truly are transforming and you can see it in these tiny ways, Yeah, exactly. um, which yeah. I, I love. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know if you want to say anything to that. I just wanted to comment. No, that's, I, I totally agree. That's really cool. Yeah, it is totally cool. Okay. So I know we're running out of time. What do you want to say? Um, what advice do you want to leave listeners? What, anything that's just sort of weighing on you, um, not in a bad way, but just, you need to get it out so that we can, um, so that we can make sure we've had a full conversation that feels good to you. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think the thing that I want to tell PhD students all the time is just that like you're worth more, you know, that you have so much to give. And I think a lot of people think about leaving academia. And and I mean, most of us do have to leave academia. Really, the numbers just bear that out. And especially, yeah, if you're talking social science humanities, like the vast majority of us have to leave academia. And this kind of um, 
this kind of idea that academia is all that's all that's worth doing and all this sort of thing. Like it's just it's just crap. It's just, <laughs> it's such a shame because it it ties people to this vision. And I think as long as people have this idea about what academia means and that they can't be happy without it. Um, they uh, they end up really stuck. And that's where you get people in years of adjuncting and years of visiting professor gigs and years of just this really shitty work and being treated like absolutely garbage. And I just want people to know that Altac can be really great, you know, that going and building your life. And yeah, we've talked about it. Like there are a lot of, there are difficulties in that that you have to go through. And I don't know if anybody can get out of that. Maybe, maybe you'll be the exception if you're listening. I don't know. But um, yeah, it really does mean taking kind of taking back your own life, you know, and, and having the agency to reinvent yourself. And what I always say to people is that I, I hate that people think that that being Alt-Act means like shrinking your vision for, for your impact in the world. You know, I hate that people are mm. thinking like, oh, like I'm leaving academia. So that means I don't get this cool life of being a professor. I'm going to go work like, I don't know, at a bank or something as my day job, you know. And I mean, I guess for some people, that's a reality. And but what I what I want to challenge people is to like create a bigger dream. Like maybe there's something better than academia that you can do. And even for myself, like as much as as much as being, you know, being a religious studies professor at some I always wanted to work at like a smaller college in a smaller city. I kind of like like I'm a small town guy. Um, as much as that would have had some impact on the world, certainly, um, you know, even the journal publications that I have that I, that I did, you know, only a few people have read those. <laughs> and on the flip side, it's like the, the vision that I have for rooster vein, and it's not there yet, but like the thing I want to build is so much more meaningful to me than, than that life I had in academia. So that like the biggest message is just don't shrink your dreams. Just like, I sound like a, I sound like a motivational speaker. I sound like a poster. My God. Remember those posters oh from the nineties? <laughs> the ones with like the runners on them and stuff or that they were in like every yeah, office yeah, building yeah. in the yes. 90s yeah. yes 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 <laughs> and, and you know what I say I say preach because yeah. this is exactly my belief too yeah exactly yeah, don't shrink yourself like don't yeah. shrink your dreams go like whatever it looks like for you I don't know you know it might be starting a non-profit it might be starting a company it might be going to be the next ceo of a big company or or it might maybe you just want to i don't know like live a quiet life in a in a little town somewhere like whatever the heck you your vision of a you know a huge fulfilled life is um what's the thing oprah says oprah always says about um our purpose is to become like the highest greatest um the highest greatest expression of ourselves and I think that's mm. that's just like a fantastic vision for PhDs too, that like you have this really kick-ass skill set that you can go and do things with. So instead of coming up with this tiny little vision that means you've settled for a life that you never wanted in the first place, I, I challenge people to go even bigger and think beyond whatever whatever academic vision they had and build something even bigger. And to me, that's where like the sweet stuff of life comes. I don't know if everybody is this hungry, but in my experience, a lot of academics are. A lot of academics went into academia because they have really big visions and they want to do big things. So like, don't get rid of that. Just like lean into it. Think bigger, you know, <laughs> create an even bigger vision. And then when you achieve that, create an even bigger one and <laughs> just go and do that for the rest of your life, basically. And as far as I know, and I, I'm only 35 and I'm not I'm not done yet. So who knows? But as far as I've experienced so far, that's where the sweet stuff of life is. And once you go and start doing that, you're a heck of a lot. You're, you're much less likely to uh, to spend all your time looking back. Amen. That was <laughs> amazing. And I couldn't agree more. And I would just say that 
that has completely been my experience. And honestly, I was just reading uh, Chris Catering's book. He, oh, he yeah, writes yeah. a practical guide. Yeah. What's, let me look. What's a it called? A practical guide, guide leading guide academia. Leading yeah. academia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he talks about having this like sense of, like when he was an academic being really an introvert and being sort of proud of being an introvert. And like, I, uh, you know, I could kind of just live my life and I didn't have to reach out to people and I could just, you know, like just, you know, from that academic perspective, sort of look on the world that, you know, I have something um, about me that, you know, nobody else does. And it's that academic sort of yeah. way of seeing the world. And I, and maybe I'm coloring this a little more than he <laughs> meant it to, but, it, but what he talks about is just being able to just flip the script. And, uh, when he started to walk away, uh, from academia, he found himself like having to deal with his introversion and finding that that introversion was actually not serving him mm-hmm. and and having to you know grow in ways that were super uncomfortable and that has been my experience too right i yeah. did not want to network i thought networking was evil i thought <laughs> people who did it were jerks yeah. i thought marketing was was evil i thought people who did it were jerks and now i find myself realizing that that's all shit I have to work out for myself. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so once you, (laughs) once you step into that bigger vision, then life gets harder too, in some ways, because you have to actually grow. But that's what it's all about. I mean, yeah, and I I know you know this too, but yeah, that growth is just the, that's the sweet stuff of life, you know, that growing. And it's funny, like, when I think back to the kind of savior complex we had in academia, that like really religious studies, I mean, we weren't curing cancer, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with the work we were doing, but but it's interesting, especially in the humanities, especially um, like religious studies has a very kind of um, critical theory kind of bend to it. And we just spend all our time looking at all these problems in the world, you know, from like poverty to you know exploitation to immigration to whatever. And we were able to say all these really smart things about each of those problems and talk about, you know, 10 different ways why why they were terrible and why they were caused by all of these different things. But like, we never actually did anything about it. It was a very, <laughs> we'd sit back and look at the world, like quite literally from that ivory tower, maybe not literally, but but actually from that ivory tower, we'd sit back and look at the world. And we still had the savior complex that we were actually doing something. And the irony is, is, is that so many of the people I meet outside of the academy are actually going and doing real practical work to solve those problems. Like when I when I'm in the refugee space, I meet people all the time who are doing really good practical work to save refugee lives. And meanwhile, in the academy, there are just people kind of talking about it, right? So it's not to, not to paint all the academy with the same brush, but I do, I do really love the, the ability to go out into the world and actually make the difference you want to make rather than just kind of complain about it. Oh my gosh, yeah. And going back to your point about living a life of empowerment rather than, you know, everything's just happening to you. Yep. Thanks for joining me today on Self-Compassionate Professor. I'm Danielle Delamar, wishing you a wonderful day and much happiness, health, and peace. Take care.